0: Welcome to Creative Wally, episode 5, Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. My name's DK, your host, and this podcast is brought to you in association with X Equals. Thank you, Alex, for hosting us again, and also produced by Jono. He's our video producer over at Empire Films. In this episode, we speak to Heria Terangi and Gulad Maya, and we discuss their backgrounds, their histories, their passion projects, everything from Maori to mental health to migrant and refugees to racism in New Zealand. Please lend us your ears and enjoy episode 5 of Creative Welly. Have you got any kid joke? Come on. No, you jokes, I, I feel like yeah. you've got some jokes. My
1: jokes are for my nan and they are not for public consumption. <laughs> <laughs> Grandparent jokes are not like, <laughs> they're 18 and very.
2: Oh my gosh, no, she, but we
0: love them. <laughs> she did look a bit cheeky, on nan, when you introduced her TEDx. And it was just like, ah, oh, she glinted in her eye. Yes. You can see she was a troublemaker.
1: Yeah, she used to call us, um, she used to say that she was our enabler. <laughs> Right. And so any time we went out clubbing she would she would like ensure that we had to, uh ways to get there and ways to get back. Mm-hmm. Um and that we had to tell her all the stories.
0: Oh, she wanted to know all the dirty stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. all the details and like, things. Oh god, no. Oh, I mad. love that. That is. It's like are you still in touch with your, your uh people back in Somalia? You like you your know extended it's,
2: family? It's I nowadays with technology, like it's like everyone is on social media now, so mm-hmm. yeah, my relatives find a way of finding me online on social media. But it's a, it's a bit weird because I always got to like, ask mom, like, hey, so is this person like related to us? Or like, what's the deal? <laughs> or like, what's the connection? So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yes, it's your cousin. Yeah. Oh, okay, <laughs> right. That's but great. I must admit, I think, you know, it's being in this part of the world, it's quite harder for us to, be, to stay in touch. And I wish sometimes that I was much more connected then okay. I am. Mm. Mm. Okay.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's been it's hard for me on the other side of the planet mm. with the time difference, but also, yeah. like, I've got a grand who's 97. Yeah, wow. Uh, oh, she, she's lovely. She's a beast in that regard, you know, 97. Like, uh. I had a, her brother, my great uncle, was like my granddad growing up because my granddad died when I was only about six or something. Yeah. So he became my de facto yeah. grandpa. And he died when he was 99 a couple of wow. years ago. Wow. And so I've got some good genes on that side of the family. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I know. It's like, wow. There's no other word for it, but wow, you know? Put it in, put in, in the innings, definitely they
2: were. And it Must yeah. be scary times at the moment with everything that's happening over there. and you know, yeah. yeah.
0: I always just, well, I've been talking to lots of people about this, yeah. the idea of carrying two... Completely different ideas in your brain yeah. at the moment, yeah. which is so pleasing and, yeah. and wonderful and comfortable being here in New Zealand yeah. at the moment. Yeah. And how privileged it feels and lucky and all those warm energy that yes, we're out and open. We, I can hug you guys yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. And do this. Yeah. Versus, yeah, my yeah. my folks are still struggling. They're yeah. kind of done with this, but they still gotta do yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and then friends and family also in the US, and like, uh, and yeah, I what's the situation in, in Africa? And all
2: Are they all different? You know, it's really interesting because, actually, you don't see much of anything reported in the media in terms of what's happening in exactly. that side of the world. Um, I'll be honest with you, because of that, I haven't been up to date in terms of everything that's been going on. Um, but it is a little scary to think, you know, what it could mean for some of these developing nations. Mm. Um, I've just been following a bit in terms of, What's been happening in refugee camps and stuff um, and yeah it's obviously COVID has been found in like one of the largest refugee camps in Bangladesh um, which is inhabited mostly by the Rohingya refugees um, so that's been quite really I guess yeah yeah watching from afar and being like oh my god how is this going to happen mm-hmm. and yeah so we've started actually a fundraiser Um, that we've been collecting um, money for. We had a really ambitious target of $10,500, which we met last week. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. It was quite ambitious, to be honest. I Mm -hmm. didn't think it would be possible. So we've kind of left it open, um, Mm -hmm. just in case, I guess, there are the Kiwis out there that want to donate.
0: Donate to what? do they? So
2: essentially, the money will go towards um, the UN Refugee Agency in providing life-saving supplies for refugees that are in Mm -hmm. camps. Things like um, sanitation facilities, um, soap, um, things that are, I guess, in this kind of period fighting COVID that are actually, you know, for us, for many Basic us, and crucial. Basic, like really but basic, crucial, right? but crucial. Yeah. yeah. yeah, A luxury to a certain degree in some of yeah, those environments, of um, to be honest, because many refugees don't have the luxury of social distancing um, and things like that. So it's going to come down to hygiene. Mm.
0: So, so I'm really interested to connect you, Pierre, because I know you haven't met, mm. but you have very s- different stories, mm. but similar, I think, kind of ethoses mm. uh, in your advocacy for the community mm. and your wider work in whatever that means. And then your specific work mm. as well, both yours in the, f- um, the kind of health, healthy home space and both yours in kind of the, the third culture mind space, yes. the mental health yes. for ethnic minorities. Um, so you're a Somalian refugee. came to New Zealand when you were six? Six years old. That's crazy to think. How old are you now,
2: can I ask? Is that 29. Okay, right. Yeah, I'm getting old. <laughs> Bless you.
0: <laughs> Bless him, he's such a child. <laughs> we're in our 40s, we can say yeah. that. That's not comforting me at all. <laughs> I know, that's a bit <laughs> patting your head. I'm sorry, i
2: was Um Where would you call home? Oh, that's an interesting question. Mm. Um, You know, for me, New Zealand is very much home. Um, Some days I don't feel like, I guess it feels like home, just because of, I guess, wider, you know, perceptions around Um, I guess, societal perceptions about us and I guess having a sense of belonging is something that I've grappled with um, growing up and not just me, but many other young kids of refugee and migrant background. So I very much find New Zealand to be home. In fact, it's all I've ever known. Um, But at the same time, you know, there's there's an element in me that feels, obviously I identify as Somali, I identify as black, I identify as Muslim, um, that can never be taken away from me. So, mm-hmm. um, but for the most part, I would say home is here in Aotearoa.
0: Mm. mm That's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Cause like I'm trying to think that at the moment, I'm always Welsh wherever I go. Yeah. And I feel
2: more Welsh when I'm not in Wales. Yeah. Than when I'm there. See, I've been back in 2008. I went back and I didn't go back to Somalia. I went to Kenya, which is the closest place to home that I could go. And even then with such a large influx of refugees that are currently still there, I still didn't feel even accepted as though being part of that environment because they saw a bit of me that was too westernized. Mm. So I'm too western for back home, but not Kiwi enough for here, Mm. you know? Which is where that their culture, kids phrase kind of comes from. Mm. Um, It's, you don't really belong anywhere, you're kind of in between the middle, essentially. Um, and they just would pick it up and they would just say things like, you know, even the way you walk is Western, we can tell you, do you know? Um, in fact, there's a word in Swahili called Muzungu. This word means European. So I remember every time I go to the shop or the dairy or just wherever, this word will constantly be held around me. Um, and I picked up and I said, what is this word? I need to know because it's constantly referred to every time uh-huh. I go somewhere, I feel like people are talking about me using this word. I find out it means European, and I was like, I'm not European, like I'm mm, as close. African as it gets, you know. <laughs> so even then, it was really interesting that that was the way that they had chose to, um, I guess, identify me as. Mm. Mm.
0: It's almost anglicised, right? Mm. That word. Mm. Thinking of the Maori word for Pakia, right? Mm-hmm. Pakia, sorry. I want
1: to <laughs> pakea. say Pakia.
0: Thank you, Pakia. Um, which, has that got a specific?
1: Well, it can have multiple meetings depending on uh, what iwi you're from and um, oh, okay. what you think as well. Um, yeah, but mostly it means um tau iwi or a uh, treaty partner or to me, that's what I interpret it as. And, and because, you know, we have the same thing. Uh, we get called half caste mm. uh, in our whan- whanau uh, when you're Maori and Pakeha. And so a lot of my cousins are blonde and blue-eyed. Um, and then I Tahu are, are very fair. Uh, we, Well, I call them the stealth <laughs> Maori um, because you'll see a blonde, blue-eyed guy stand up on a pie and go, quiet, <laughs> and then just start up a corridor. And then it's like, I think, hopefully, it's starting to be more accepted because we blend yeah. so easily. Mm. Um, and But in the 1980s, 1970s, not so much. Um, and, but yeah, it depends on how you brought up. For some families half-caste was a derogatory term, for my father, it meant pretty, well, you know, mm. pretty intelligent. Ah, yeah. mm. okay.
0: So you lived through the, you were an 80s child obviously, um, you then entered the 90s, did you look back and see a huge change in the society and acceptance of?
1: Because uh, I grew up up the Whangana River, mm. so in a place called Ranana, <laughs> uh, and we had 30, 30 pupils uh, and that was the entire school uh, and we were all Māori uh, and there was only one maybe two Pākehā children and they were the ones that were picked on and because we were the majority right wow. yeah um, and it wasn't until I got to college in Purirua in Wellington mm. uh, where I was the minority then mm-hmm. um, and so I had a really privileged upbringing of being really solid on who yeah. I am and then being transported into somewhere where I'm not the majority and then still feeling really solid about who I am. Yeah, yeah. and so not not a lot of kids get that, so.
0: Fascinating. Mm. And obviously similar kind of yeah. feelings yeah, going yeah, I back mean, and forth
2: there. Definitely, there's definitely some similarities in there. Like I remember, I mean, I was like literally the token black kid mm. in school in most of my classes. Um, I did once have a a stint at Narawahe High School um, where it just was a completely different environment altogether, Um, but it was one that was actually quite empowering because obviously, you know, most of the students were indigenous Māori students, um, and that was completely different in terms of my environment and and, and so forth. It actually allowed me to better understand um, Māori culture, which I'm definitely grateful for, for the experience, yeah.
1: Yeah, I have to say, the same but opposite, because predominantly my friends are Yeah. and so that whole fitting in yeah. culture, mm. it was it was a bit hard, yeah. um, but I survived, <laughs> <Or did we. laughs> um and I'm glad. But I also think that it's a privilege to say that I'm capable yeah. in those situations yeah. now. It doesn't matter what the mix is anymore. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, we just get on with it, and um, people are just people.
2: I think the interesting thing though is just, as somebody who grapples with trying to fit in, do you know, like sometimes I can't imagine what it's like to fit in on your own whenua.
1: Yeah. Mm.
2: How's that like?
1: It's weird, because, you know, me and my partner are both Māori, um, but he's much more lighter than I am, and that's predominantly why we're tattooed up, because it's <laughs> like, this is who I am. Yeah, Please yeah. don't question that. Yeah. Um, sure. This is where I belong. Um, but it is very... It, it comes across as something else. Instead of it being a, a, a half-caste or a skin differenti- differentiator, it ends up being, oh, they have... Um, power jobs mm. or they have money that's how it comes through um, and so we are sectioned out almost like that or uh, oh no haley won't sleep in the I, yeah i will i just need people to not be snoring that's yeah
0: because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise they don't sleep yeah, yeah, yeah it's
1: everybody a, not just me yeah
0: <laughs> wow that's a great question you know fitting
2: in with kind of fitting in where you should fit in
1: but yeah,
0: London.
2: on your own land, I'm just, yeah, yeah. I think I find that really... Um, do you know, like, sometimes when, because I'm involved in a lot of advocacy stuff, and honestly, when the going gets tough, and I'm just like, this is so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that keeps me going is, I definitely think about Indigenous communities and what they've had to endure, and still are being faced with, and I'm like, nothing comes close, nothing comes close. So um, I think in many ways it's definitely, I guess, um, when you reflect on it, it definitely makes you realize how lucky we are to a certain degree, but Mm -hmm. also the need on why we need to continue pushing for change. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the
1: privilege is real um, from my point of view. Because, you know, you think back on your life and you think about all the decisions that led you to be here, and a good half of them wasn't me. It just wasn't me. Um, It might have been because I was a kid and I was in someone else's care. It might have been my grandparents making decisions, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't me. Um, And so that whole thing of, yeah, it's lonely. It's lonely as all hell, Mm -hmm. and it's easy to burn. And it's hard to find other people that you can relate to on the same level. Yeah, because, you know, when you've got a job and it's nine to five, it's easy because everyone's nine to five and the grind is there. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you're stoking it out with mm. maybe a, with funding problems <laughs> as well as government department problems and regulations and you've got all of these streams going at once and you've still got nine to five plus the kids, it's real hard, yeah. yeah.
0: So I'd love to talk just a little bit about your background as mm. well because you're quite unusual being a Maori lady who's also a geek, yeah nerdy by nature. <laughs> You know, and looking at your past in terms of being a product owner or product lead for Mm. digital projects, online projects, um, how has that been? Kind of navigating that space, being both female Maori. Mm. Um, Is there anything you've learned?
1: Yeah, Um, stubborn is a good quality. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Being hard of hearing is a good quality. Good. Um, The In the beginning of my career, it was difficult. It was really difficult. Getting that first crack, that first tech role. Yeah, it was hard. Um, And then, because it was the early 2000s, people weren't as woke as they are now. (laughs) And so you'd still get things like, hey, hey Hadia, can you make the morning tea? Oh, my
0: God. Wow. And you're like, okay, I'm busy. (laughs) Yeah, you pay me to code. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, It's challenging. Right.
1: Um, but there's also like, it's almost like you have to have a good amount of um, stubbornness mixed with mm. creativity and sheer bloody mindedness. Mm. Um, because, you know, a lot of Maori that are in like jobs like this that are heavy pressure are doing it for their whanau or their wider whanau. Um, whether that's for money or just to give someone a role model, it's not just for you to pay the bills, if you mm. know what I mean. Mm. And so you, you have to dig in and you have to keep going regardless of what anyone else says. Yeah.
0: That's lovely. And now, you're spending your time with Fari Hoara. Hawara. Hoara, sorry, Ho- please forgive me. <laughs> Hoara. <laughs> Where are you at with that story? Do you know about this story? Because it's wonderful and it's but tragic and beautiful and so reaching and needed. Yeah. as well uh, at the moment you know and uh, so tell us a little bit about it so everybody's got a background but also then where you are with your story yeah Love to know.
1: Um, so we um, way back three years ago uh, we created a sensor that would measure temperature and humidity inside of a room I compare that with the World Health Organization recommendations for healthy homes tell you if your home is going to make you sick effectively and uh, then give you next steps to fix it So, the problem that we found was that um, everybody knows that their house is cold and damp, but they don't know how bad, and they don't know how much it's affecting their health. And because New Zealand has some of the largest rates of asthma, uh, eczema, and pneumonia uh, in the the world, (laughs) um, and the sheer amount of deaths, it's like 700,000 from respiratory illness a year. It's like, yeah. Um, Crazy. Crazy numbers. Um, And the sheer amount that we spend on um, respiratory programs and health, Mm. um, medicines, and all of that, Mm, we could actually fix it. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, and it it comes down to the quality of housing and how our houses are built with no Mm -hmm. insulation at all, in some cases. Um, So, yeah, um, and so we got that up and running three years ago, myself, Amber Craig, and Brenda Wallace. Uh, And so...
0: More geeky, nerdy ladies. Nerdy
1: ladies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, that could have
0: uh, been the, the title, nerdy ladies yeah, so. anyway, Nerdy it. ladies,
1: <laughs> uh, and uh, Amber is Māori and she has in Kauai as well, yeah. um, and so we're quite, we're weird <laughs> in the tech <laughs> <laughs> Um and so uh, we got quite far quite quickly because mm. we built by hand in the beginning, but then we were given funding by uh, Te Puni Kokiri uh, to go to manufacturing to make it faster. Um, and then it was too expensive, so I went to China <laughs> and got it done faster there. Lucky for me, I'm clever with a wee bit of anxiety and <laughs> got more than one nice. <laughs> uh, manufacturer. Because over COVID, because of um, because the sensors are also used in other types of product, products mm. and electronics right now are under heavy demand because of respiratory mm. uh, respirators. Of course. Yeah, so one yeah. of our manufacturers actually stopped talking to us because we think they pivoted. Um, And so that meant that that entire chain just disappeared. Mm. Yeah, and so I replaced it (laughs) with the second one. Um, Because, you know, they are, uh, our new supplier is commercially, is a commercial product rather than a home product, Mm. uh, which is why we didn't go with it first. Mm. But, and it's more expensive, but they are not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So you're selling it now? It's out in the market? uh, um, We're in manufacturing now
2: exciting yeah
1: and so we should get it in the next couple of months and then we've got to push it out I know right well it's
0: going to revolutionize your hope not just educational side but you think about the health impact
1: Mm -hmm.
0: which I know is majority of where this story started from with you with your grandmother's death
1: yeah it's one of the reasons why I changed our the way that we target customers or target families Um, because, you know, anyone can buy, if you've got enough money, anyone can buy a kit like this. You can literally get it off Amazon. Um, But if you really mean to make change at a base level, then you actually have to partner with health organisations like um, Turanga Health in Gisborne and they make the sensors a part of their respiratory health programme for Komatua and Pepe, which is what we're doing. You're
0: building some good layers there.
1: Yeah, it's been hard slog. <laughs> uh
0: huh. I hear you. Oh, what on. I really love about the project, as well, is your approach to data.
1: Yeah.
0: Which is unique. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. No, no manufacturer of data component technology part things are treating the data as a. They're all treat data as a as a as a resource to spin off and mm-hmm. make some more money on. Yeah. But. Tell us how you approach that data side of things, because yeah. it's just like, ah, of course.
1: Yeah, it's pretty much the same, <laughs> just with a slight tweak um, to all the Silicon Valley startups and to the Facebooks and the Googles, uh, because they state that with, when you use their product, any data that is created by you is owned by them. Mm. And we state that you are using our product, mm. but any data that is created by you is owned by you. Um, and because we treat it as an asset for the whanau Mm -hmm. because when you do it like that you are also giving them something say if a family has six months worth of data and it's a winter say Mm -hmm. in there somewhere um, and there's like a thousand families and they're all in Tauranga (laughs) and then the Ministry of Health need um, to understand what their budget for respiratory illness will be for the Tauranga area or a DHB I should say Um, and then they go hey you guys have that data. It's like, yes, right Mm -hmm. down to the specific house. And they're like, can we buy it? Yes, but here are all the really, very large rules. Here's a contract and you can only have, we have rules around who can see what type of data. Absolutely. So no one can see personal data or uh, we don't even know the name (laughs) of the whanau. We know the address, but that's that's encoded Mm. really deeply. Um, And then we aggregate it up. So you can tell by suburb, Mm. by housing type, Mm. by state housing type, uh, by respiratory illness type, by um, if children are present, if kou are present, um, family sites too. Uh, And you know, because that's what people need Mm -hmm. in order to be able to make a call, right? If you're going to go, okay, I'm going to target respiratory illness Mm. for Māori Pacifica in the Tauranga area, Mm. here's a data set here are the types of housing that you need to hit in the suburbs.
0: But you, as the owner of that data, that you have access to, there's a payment gateway yes. thing as well, isn't there? Yeah.
1: So we are kaitiaki, yes. and so we serve it up. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, 50% of the profit, say, if you're DHB, and you, and we'll go, um, if you want six months' worth of data, it'll cost you $50,000, say. Uh, there are a 1,000... Um, homes and whānau inside of that data set, we'll take twenty five thousand dollars for upkeep and maintenance of everything and then we'll take twenty five thousand dollars and distribute it between all everybody that's within the data set.
2: That is incredible. Mm. It's lovely. That is And f- obvious. Wow. Yeah. And
0: kind yeah. of like why isn't then everybody else doing this? Yeah.
2: Yeah. That is that is awesome. Yeah. Do you partner with like um, I guess somebody like housing new zealand and stuff or, or to be able to help get that data in the first place or have you already established relationships with um the whanau's who are mm. on board
1: so um the health organization has the relationship nice um and so they are the ones that so we don't see the data ever yeah um we just ensure that the sensors are working that the data is coming through yeah. and that the reporting that is needed for the family so they can make good decisions is yeah. there the okay. reporting that is the um, good for Turanga Health is there but in the event that DHB asks for a thing then we pull it all together and go it'll cost you this much Um, but it also means that uh, say the crazy thing about this and I cried when I figured it out is that theoretically um, when it's nine degrees outside uh, we know what temperature it will be inside your home because, say, if it's nine degrees outside Hmm. now and it's only 14 degrees inside, then it will always be 14 degrees inside unless you add heat, right?
0: Gotcha, yeah.
1: And so if we know that there's a big storm coming and it's nine degrees outside or seven degrees at one o'clock in the morning, we can give a probability of, say, 60% of our thousand homes are going to be only 12 degrees mm-hmm. inside and they've been that way for a good four to five hours overnight. Yeah. So the probability of a respiratory illness occurring and putting heavy load on the health organisations around that suburb is this, and then we can tell people, well the health organisations, how wild. much.
0: What are you hoping that, not just the, the wider impact, you just described mm-hmm. the perfect scenario of the yeah. wider impact, what about more of a personal impact yeah. at, a, at the homes? Would, Would you imagine some people then will move, they'll put more emphasis on their landlord, to put Mm. better, is that what you're hoping really to?
1: Well, I'm hoping, because um, in my day-to-day job, I'm an Agile coach, right, and so I just cut out all the guff and move things so that Mm -hmm. it makes more sense. Um, And I can because, you know, I'm not permanent. Mm. I, I expect, I hope for the same thing to happen within government, so if I can say, right you are spending this much on respiratory health but in the home people don't have insulation don't have double glazing don't have heating um, and they're prioritizing because you know if you've only got a hundred dollars you prioritize rent and food and power Mm -hmm. over heat and you know everything else that you need to do so I would expect I would hope that they would take a chunk of that money and push it back into Fano, into vulnerable families, mm. um, regardless of, because, you know, that whole thing of, um, I'm going to give you $100, but you have to tell me what you, you're going to do with it first. Mm. Is that a gift? Mm. Is it really? Mm. It should be gifted. Mm. Anything to improve health outcomes should be gifted. Fascinating.
2: Our homes are horrendous here. I lived in Canada for two years and I never was cold inside the house and I just, honestly, it just made me feel really, really grateful that, you know, and then I just looked back and I just was like, man, how are we still freezing in our own homes in New Zealand, you know?
1: Yeah. It's crazy. The whole thing of watching the rugby with a beanie and yes. a blanket or in a jersey and you can see your breath. Yeah. It's like, no, that's around seven degrees when you can do that, by the way.
0: And that's dangerous. Yeah. It's just full stop dangerous for our health. Yeah. And then the condensation and then the mould, and it's just a knock-on effect, isn't it?
1: Yep. And, you know, there are, um, overnight, especially in homes with no insulation, what can happen is that the moisture will coalesce in in the air and form drops and just rain in your room. You won't feel it as rain. It'll probably be more of a mist, um, but you'll wake up and touch your bedspread and it will be wet or damp. Wow.
0: And that's where mould can get into the furnishings, then, right? Into the because curtains, the some people can't see the mould but can mm-hmm. smell it, and it might be somewhere else. And
1: yeah. And um, we went out to the community quite a bit, and so they were in state housing mostly. But um, they taught them each other this thing where they'd get a um, a, a dish, put some soap in the dish, uh, you know a block of soap, um, put it on their bed's um, nightstand, and then wake up in the morning and touch it. If it was wet, then the the coalition, the moisture had um, dropped onto the bedspread, and that's why it was wet. <laughs>
0: wow! Yeah. So this was like a little trick that Trip you could that do in the house, yeah, to monitor that level.
1: Yeah, yeah. Is that kind of
0: but that doesn't stop it. No. That's the problem, right? That only doesn't. indicates the problem mm. rather mm-hmm. than.
1: Mm-hmm. Stops yeah. the problems Because some Because you know A lot of I know uh, Sleep with the kids In the bed And sometimes They don't know If the kid wet the bed Or not mm. And so You know This was a little trick For them to figure out What's what mm. Oh okay mm.
0: That's fascinating It like got me say.
2: thinking hey, Like I could I feel like If I had known that trick, I definitely would have done it At mm. an old house That I used to live at So when I first moved To Wellington um, I guess The housing crisis Is still here But like You know It was really bad Back then I mean It still probably is bad But like I found myself where I was potentially about to go homeless, right? Because Mm -hmm. I couldn't find a rental property. And on top of that, like, I'm black, like, you know, I'm (laughs) a young male. Like, there's multiple elements within my identities that do not help my circumstances Mm -hmm. at that point. And a lot of people think, oh, is this real? It's real. Um, Anyways, we got really, really desperate, and we moved into this house in Karori because basically it was the only house we could find. Mm -hmm. I kid you not. It was so bad. It was just... It was, it, was, it, was, it was not fit. Like, it felt colder inside the house than it was outside. Yeah, and yeah. is that something you've come across in your work as well? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, yeah, because it can't hold heat yeah. at all. Yeah. And at least outside, because you know, structures can hold heat, And yeah. like concrete does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, inside, because it's shaded, no. But that's horrific.
2: It was really bad, and I mean, like we were lucky that we were able to build the courage to tell our landlord that actually we've been sick multiple times, that we cannot continue to live in here. But a lot of people don't have that option or that choice.
1: Mm. Yeah, mm.
0: yeah, no. So, what's the um, what's the timeline for uh, we
1: the should, rollout? Yeah, we should be out within the next two months, if not sooner. Mm. Yeah, depending on when they land.
2: Of course, that's exciting.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. So this yeah. is uh, a.
0: As end of the start of the journey
1: yes
0: because it doesn't end there right no. this is just right now we're rolling out <laughs> and three years has taken you to get our product to market
1: yeah it would have been to be honest it would have been if i had had my tech nerd hat on it would have been easy easy mm. as pie um, but because you have to dig underneath what the s- systemic problems are, in order to answer them, yeah, it took us a whole heap longer for Sure.
0: Mm. Are you still supplying the kits in terms of so they can see what's in it?
1: Oh DIY, <laughs> um, we aren't, but right. to be honest it wouldn't be that hard to spin that back up <laughs> because we literally got it off um, AliExpress for the parts right. yeah, yeah. Mm. and so it just made yeah, it just made sense, and it was time as well, how much time do we have to put t- together kits, because yeah. it took me a good what two weeks to do I think it was 50 40 kits. right yeah
0: so just for backstory they used to arrive in parts mm. but mm-hmm. it was only like four screws you had to yeah. to make them back but the idea was that you could see what it's made of oh yeah so I there's do. nothing in there that you like mm, what's this little bit Do yeah. yeah. and that's where the yeah. data's yeah. being sent mm. and I love that transparency approach of it comes deconstructed so you can yeah. see it's a, it's a bold, and I can imagine a lot of people are like crunching their faces going, why aren't everybody doing this? But also some people are yeah. going, that's a terrible business model. It
1: is. <laughs> it's a terrible, it is a terrible business model. You mode. don't hold the data,
0: <laughs> and then you give the money back. What the hell are you doing?
1: Yeah, and people make the money right with their own, own data, and you don't actually make anything or bus, of barbed maintenance. So. Mm. So,
2: well,
1: that's
2: but, really beautiful. Did I hear you right in saying that you've been doing this Basically, just in your own spare time, like, and you have a full time job on top of this?
1: Yeah, well, wow. I have two. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> Not so. But that's tech for you as well. Yeah. Because um, I also work for uh, another organisation um, as um, head of customer experience as well. So, you know, I just build products. Mm. And it, to me, it doesn't matter if it's theirs yeah. or mine. <laughs> yeah. And so I think I would just do that anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but to make this in your spare time yeah. is, whilst being yeah. a, you know, that small part of your head being a mum, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's, <laughs> well, know. You know, it's, like, massive. Mm. It's fascinating, it's just, like, what people can drive themselves when mm. you've got that great juicy problem that you're trying to solve, yeah. but you can already see the the knock-on effects, the domino mm-hmm. um, impact that you could have, mm. these small little mm. things that are going to create w- wicked yeah. waves.
1: Yeah, I get... Because we we, t- we talk about it. You have to find the hill that you, you're happy to die on. Yeah.
2: Nice. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is so true. What's your hill? My hill? Um, I guess it's that drive to help shape a much more inclusive, welcoming um, world, I suppose. Um, and that's really what kind of drives me in the various different um Voluntary work that I'm involved in. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've been busy the last year I've been busy in the last year and Okay,
0: or oh, 19 yeah. years however long you've been here, but it's I was I was specifically relating to you know since March last year Yes, yeah, um, and yeah. the mosque shootings. Yeah, um, yeah You were called upon a lot for your advocacy
2: especially yeah. spanning many Yes, arenas Sure yes. Say. Yes. It all just I think um it's quite a heavy burden to carry actually. I, mm. I talk about this a lot, but um I don't really I think expected that I would be I guess a face and a voice for a really large, diverse community, okay, I think who has multiple perspectives Mm -hmm. um, to be expected to carry, I guess, the weight of being the voice and face of Mm -hmm. that community. So I found myself in that position, and I found myself in that position in the most odd way ever following a national tragedy. Um, I remember just on the day, so rewind two days Mm -hmm. before um, the event, uh, because I do a lot of, I guess, community stuff, and I was at the Auckland Arts Festival. I was speaking on a panel which was um, alongside Golriz Um it's been a while now, I'm trying to figure out who else was on it myself. Uh, it was chaired by John Campbell, and it was another person. And I remember very vividly the conversation that I had on that panel, and I talked about just the sense of, I guess, how we're growing up, feeling really unsafe, And I said, I worry about the future of my little nieces. I've got five little nieces, they're just so cute and adorable. Um, And they just wanna be like their mum, always trying to put on the hijab every time the mum goes out, you know, they're so little so they don't wear the hijab and stuff. Um, But it it got me reflecting on the choice that they have to make when they grow up, right? Because to wear a hijab comes with a price, a heavy price. Mm. A price that I've seen my sisters pay and also my own mother, um, and the racial abuse that is held at them when they are out in public, or just just the random things that happens. And I just, I guess, I express in the event about my concerns for the world in which they're growing up in, and if they'll be okay following the choice that they make. I guess as a as a man, I'm privileged in the sense that I am not as visible mm-hmm. as as them when they put on a hijab. So this is two days before March the fifteenth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, March 15th. So um, we were all in front of the telly watching everything unfold um, and John decided to tell the story like on air um, and saying you know I can't help but think about Goulet and his little nieces and what he said. So that's when my phone started running off the hook and everybody trying to get a hold of me being like can you come on this? So yeah the next day I had to front Um, the nation to talk about what was happening yet it wasn't even declared as a terrorist attack by our very own prime minister at Mm -hmm. that time because it was just so soon of course um so it was it was quite scary it was quite daunting lots of sleepless nights you know that whole week was just it was it was it was really tiring and it was just it was just so exhausting so a bunch of stuff had happened which kind of i guess that whole week and then in new zealand try to profit some money from their flights you know they Flights went up to like $700. And thanks to social media, we were able to like, you know, put this out there, um, which then, you know, a lot of people were angry about it. So then they kept it back to 150. Um, because in the Muslim community, we have to bury our dead quite quickly, um, which isn't the same in some other cultures, do you know, where mm-hmm. uh, I guess families can wait around a certain period, where for us, as this needs to be done quite quickly. So there was all this tension that was already happening on the ground in terms of when the bodies will be retrieved and when they can be buried. And it was just real chaotic and that was like a side that the rest of New Zealand will never get to see because no media was allowed in that space Mm. when we were meeting and just like literally, I mean, I kid you not, the police would come and say, we need to do a scene examination, and people would be so mad. Like shoes would be thrown. Like we want to bury our dead right now, type thing. Like, understandably, it was it was it was it was a chaotic situation because yeah. I don't think anybody ever prepares themselves for that situation. So yeah, it was it was it was a tough week. Um, you know, it's 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 a privilege, and it's 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 I guess it's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but at the same time, it's it's a heavy burden to carry because you know for me, my biggest thing in those times and still even much for now it isn't so much about what the wider society has to say about what I have to say. It's more about oh my god, how will my own community react yeah. to what I'm saying right now? You know, mm. will they be supportive of it? Um, will they be thinking, oh my gosh, I did not do them justice? Mm. I mean, because there's been countless times where I've watched members of my own community in public arena and i'm just like no no my guy why did you do that you know so (laughs) i was like i hope they're not thinking that of me right now Um, it is it is a it is a heavy burden to carry um it's completely and i don't think people understand that and then also i think the other element to it is that um trying to deliver your message in a way where it's i guess influences people's decision and actions but at the same time remains true to your cause and where you're trying mm. to come from and you know not be a sellout I suppose, um, it's a tricky balance. I
0: remember seeing you on and with John Campbell, mm. um, I think it might have been Wellington like a couple mm. days later uh, with a lady with a hijab yes. on and Yes, it was in Christchurch actually. It, oh yeah. was it, okay mm. and, and you it was like a two-way conversation yes. And yes. stuff and it felt like I wanted to just reach down and give you a hug because mm. you were still struggling mm. with the fact that it happened yeah. versus, yeah. so what are you, everybody feeling from the community? Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. I get why he's asking that, yeah. but it's like, you can see you're struggling. Yeah. It's just like, no, just... Yeah. I yeah. found that really hard to watch. That only because I knew you. Yeah. I remember tweeting you at the time. Right? Yeah. You know, the the air was, was like. It was really ground. hard.
2: It was really hard. I think for me, yeah. it was like for here we were again trying to explain to everybody things that we've been talking about for years and years right. and years, okay. only to be continuously ignored. Uh-huh. So there was a sense of frustration as well that. I found myself in a position doing that because it's like, well, where were you this all these years when we've been talking about this? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it was that frustration, but also recognizing that it was a small window of opportunity and that's really what it was. It's, and in some ways, I feel like we've lost that. Really, I really do feel okay. that. Um, and it was that tricky balance of trying to, I guess, keep those conversations going, but like, not be an angry black man, to be quite frank.
1: Absolutely. I was watching. I was watching and reading and going. I was swearing <laughs> because because uh, we have the same very yeah. clear protocols about death. Yes. And you know when someone is holding you off from your loved ones, mm. and it's more about a process. And we and I totally understand the reason for that process, but there is a reason for our process too. Mm. And mm. it felt like the waiting was severely off. <laughs> yeah. And then, because uh, when well, for me, I um, I dislike speaking in the pu- in the public arena when it looks like the question is, as all Maori, mm. <laughs> what
2: do you have to say? Yeah, I
1: was like, as Hadia hey, mm. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, who happens to be Maori, yeah, mm. um, and can speak from my experience, mm. but not for mm. every. Kao. Mm. Mm. that's hard to take on, and that's yeah. where I recognised when you were doing what you were doing, yeah. even though I celebrated yeah. them, thought it was mm. bloody mm. crucial.
2: Yeah. I think also, like, the media never really got to know us. They never really okay. went out of their way to try and build relationships with communities. We were always just, you know, they had the token person that they always go to for everything and anything to do with ethnic communities as a whole. Mm. Um, you know, yet Muslims were quite on the back burner especially if you're black or have any other minority identity mixed with that. When we talk about diversity, really that conversation just stops at Asian. You know, it's like anything beyond that has always been like, okay, we don't even really like have publicly available statistics on you guys on many things when it comes to it because you're so small, um, which has always been like a justification Mm. used against us. So we've already had a sense of feeling invisible Mm. that mixed with everything. Um, I think the media themselves had struggled and i think they realized that okay they fucked up sorry about my language okay, um we're allowed to swear. okay we're okay adults. okay see they messed up and and that they needed to be able to um, amend those relationships with communities but also to get to know them and so there was a, a lot of scramble scrambling that was happening to that to that perspective um, i think for me to receive messages from my own community and to tell me no one's represented us like this, please continue. At the same time, I'm like, I I don't know if I can continue. Mm. So at the same time, this is what I mean by it's a heavy burden to carry, because it's like you recognize that you're not in a position to speak for Mm. such a diverse range of community, um, yet there are elements within your own community who feel like you're representing them really well. And they really want you to continue, especially when it came from, like families of, you know, direct impacted victims, um, that for me was like, whoa, okay, like actually I owe it to them. So your validation almost? Uh, Absolutely. Stepping out of the house? Absolutely. But um, with that comes a heavy price, um, you know, I think things like online hate and just things like, you know, stuff like that, which I had always known about, I never really expected it to kind of play out the way that things have played out, even in the weeks that oh, had How did followed. it play out? Can I ask? you? Was um, it just Twitter trolls? Was I, you know, I, of think, I, think, I think we can't really dismiss it as just being Twitter trolls because okay. it's much more broader than that. Um, you know, people once thought uh, the Christchurch um, terrorist was an uh, online social troll in his messaging. Um, to people. So to like receive really threatening messages just in the days and the weeks that followed mm. was quite like, whoa, this is actually quite scary. Um, this is not anything that I had anticipated in. Um, and, you know, it's it's always minority communities that are at the forefront of this. Um, <laughs> imagine if I was a female, like I would have had a 10 times fault. you know, like definitely. And it's, it's it's things like that that really you're just like okay maybe i need to slow it down mm. maybe you know and and that's exactly what they're trying to do um but yeah mm. it's it's a tricky one what did you
0: know looking back mm. you know it's been over a year mm. nearly 18 months man mm-hmm. um what would you do differently
2: um i think For me, I never really had any, I guess, anybody who's been like, okay, I've walked the shoes. You know, I know what it's like. Um, I most certainly would not have done anything differently. I think I'm really proud of myself for the way that I was able to navigate around that situation. Um, I think my focus more now has been on how do I uplift my own community to have a voice um, for them to feel heard. Because recognizing that this isn't a burden that one person alone can carry, um, how do I evenly distribute the burden, I suppose, um, and, and what can I do with the relationships that I have built uh, with folks in media and others to be able to bring my community up? So that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, you know, i reflected on, okay, during those times, was there anything that I could have done differently? And I think it's a big ass to bring other people along in their situation, recognizing um, the playing field that you're exposing people to. Do you know I have a lot of young kids who come up to me and say, I really wanna be like you and wanna be a strong advocate for my community and whatnot. And I wanna like start doing commentary stuff in media. How do I do that? And I'm just like, are you sure? (laughs) Are you sure? Are you really, really sure? At the same time, I want to support them to do what they want to do, but at the same time, recognizing, I guess, giving them a bit of an awareness of the territory that it comes with because it's really exhausting, it's tiring, this is things that I do outside of my own time from work. Um, You know, I too have a full-time job that I need to be able to balance out on top of everything else. Um, So, which is why, actually, the Third Culture Mind series came about as well as a result of that um, and giving a voice to other young people in my community, for them to have their stories heard um, and told as well has been a big focus. So I never really anticipated in doing anything like that, but a sole motivator for doing the series was around okay.
0: that. So that came out of
2: directly, your experience there? Absolutely, it came out as a directly yeah. as a result of my experience and the relationships that I have built along the gotcha. way. And recognizing that this is something that I need to use to benefit mm. my community.
0: I saw on the Third Culture Minds website you're doing facilitated kind of sessions, yeah.
2: workshops. Yeah. Stuff. What would I experience if I attended them? Or is it for me? It's, 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 it's for young people of refugee and migrant background. Not um, for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's for them. And I think, well, you know, for us, the organization in itself was obviously established to help, you know, unlock the full potential of uh, young people of um, ethnic background, so Third Culture Kids, which is a group you know, we refer to it as, you know, the, I guess the children of former refugees and migrants themselves, um, who are still grappling with a sense of identity, finding a place to belong, all of that, because we know that those are issues that further compounds the mental health and well-being outcomes for this generation. Right. Um, so it does have a mental health and well, strong mental health and well-being outcome, our uh, sort of focus, but the way that we try to frame that is, is in the broader sense, well-being in the broader sense, because there is a cultural stigma when it comes to things like talking about mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those that actually come to that workshop, we break down that barrier, that cultural barrier. We provide a safe space for us to be able to talk about these issues, for people to discuss their feelings and really difficult things in terms of how they're processing stuff. Um, this is something that we had been doing prior to March 15th, but obviously recognizing the heightened you know, period that something needed to be done specifically in relation to Muslim youth because we were all impacted we were all impacted you know the community is so small that we know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody so we were all impacted in one way or another Um, and we were impacted in different ways but ultimately it was taking a toll on our own mental health and well-being so we needed some space to be able to talk about it to come up with i guess how we were all feeling how we were all processing where support was needed um, we then try to use that information to try and feed into service delivery organizations who are grappling with, I guess, how to start, where to begin, um, all of that stuff, and, and then for them to try and helpfully use that information as a way of tailoring their services uh, for a rangatahi that we work with um, and recognizing their unique needs. So. Um, those workshops provide a safe environment for people to be able to discuss these things. Wow. Yeah, yeah, but also we, it depends on the audience. We do have workshops that we run for service providers themselves, so that they can also, understand. it's almost kind of like, we don't want to call it, you know, cultural engagement training or whatever, but in a way, it's, it's, it's framed upon um, from that lens, yeah. so important nowadays. It's it's important and it's a missing perspective. And it's, it's it's something that Māori have been grappling with for hundreds and hundreds of years and still are.
1: Yeah, uh, post-colonially, right? And, you know, just looking at our suicide rates mm. um, and we have the same stigma around mental health issues. Um, and then there's the inter- intergenerational trauma on top of that. and mm. it, And then intergenerational trauma, um, mental health issues, um, alcohol dependency, drug dependency, then yeah. you add in things like housing, um, lack of um, jobs, and then it just stacks one on top of the other yeah. and it just compresses.
0: Yeah. yeah. The prison population, right, and yeah. it's just like, it does seem so weighted against, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's confusing for the token white guy in the room to, to discuss that Mm. um, because I don't get it Mm. you know but maybe that's a good thing that I don't get it because then Mm. I can have Mm. these types of conversations Mm. but equally it's like that cultural education Mm. I remember being in school obviously being brought up in Wales Mm. and being taught Welsh history for example you know, and some of the mythos around it, you know, and some of the Welsh-specific stories, which you would never yeah. find out mm. unless you're in a Welsh little school about uh, Breth Gellat, which was this dog that saved uh, the prince's child from the wolf and stuff like that. Mm. All kind of, you know, mythology that kind of lets you understand moral and ethical uh, yeah. ideas. And then when I was, went to university and I was speaking to some of my new friends who were from England, and talking to them about kind of so where you're from and all that stuff mm-hmm. and having a sense of their identity they never got taught any kind of of their stories it was just a british idea right although british is english but my point is that where you're from does kind of seep into your culture yeah. if you're educated enough around kind of the stories are being shared to you yeah And and we had Jace, who I know you know, some of you might not know Jace, Jace, uh, a friend of ours who spoke at TEDx Wellington last year, and he does mindfulness with young kids. He teaches yoga, but mental health, and breathing and stuff, but he weaves it in with all the stories for Maori, and stuff, and and it makes it come alive, right? So he's educating as well and sharing his education. And there's something in there, right, about being culturally literate oh yeah, not just from your culture but other cultures and you how they're kind of yeah. working their way through the world and just being accepted and even though we're very very different mm. we're all the bloody same right all trying to find out yeah you know, kind of where we're from and yeah. work better with each other in the world
1: because mm-hmm. I, I think the um what i felt was missing when um the shootings went down or any type of event that, that centered around someone else's culture or religion is the lack of context Um, And so there was so much assumption that it happens on the internet, right? The conspiracy theories run rife and people Mm. just pop off saying whatever the heck they like. Um, Which is really weird considering that the internet is also the font of all knowledge and you can just check. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, You can just do that, oh I'm wrong. Oh yes, Delete that tweet before I press send. Yeah. You're right.
1: And so um, that whole, I think that the joy of learning about others' cultures comes from the joy of learning about your own. Mm. And if you are denied your own, then well put. Um, the blinkers go on and you don't look at anyone else's mm. either. Well put. That yeah. was
2: beautiful, yeah. That was really well put. I think also, you know, you were just talking about things like education in schools and whatnot. I, you know, I an area of work that I've been closely associated with, I guess, or been involved in is... Um, Helping to bridge that gap between um, tangata whenua and newly resettled communities, Mm -hmm. um, or just recent migrants and stuff. And one of the things that people keep pointing back to is the Treaty, and and it's the way (laughs) it's funny eh, because it's like you know even in my own communities there's a lot of misconceptions about tiriti and what it means and how it relates to them. Their conception of it is that oh this is the thing between. Pākehā and Māori, so it's like not relevant for me. And again, I feel like, which is so frustrating to hear, but it goes back to the way that it's taught in schools, right? Mm-hmm. Because if it's framed as, okay, um, I don't even know who was it back then that had signed the treaty on behalf of the Crown. You know, but for me, the way I look at it is that it's obviously a, it's, it's a partnership between uh, Tangata Whenua and the settlers we are an extension of the settlers, even though it was signed by, I don't know, some white guy back then. Mm. It doesn't matter, I'm still a settler, I'm not Tangata Whenua. So I see it as being very relevant to me and my relationship with Māori on this Fenua. And when people are explaining that way, they're like, oh, that's an interesting way to put it. And they're like, okay, so how do you explain biculturalism? Because mm. that, in a sense, isn't, It doesn't feel like I'm in it. It's between two cultures. And it's like, well, you conceptualize it in this very same way that I just explained it, you know, that biculturalism is a partnership between, you know, I guess, two cultures. And I said, in a way, you can look at it as an extension to multiculturalism, Mm. Um, but it's not taught that way.
1: No, it's not. It's, it's almost ridiculous, because it would solve quite a few problems, yes. I think. Like, quite a few problems. Right. Um, um, you know. Uh, because I was, I was just talking with my friends about um, how we, as Māori, because we have enough problems between each other, <laughs> if you know what I mean, when it comes to, um, uh, because there's the concept of urban Māori. Um, so urban Māori uh, come from their grandparents moving from their iwi into the cities, and then the disconnection of those f- f- families back to their hapu and iwi, mm. and so, because I I term myself as urban Maori, because there is no there is no connection back to my iwi for me, except that I know that I am from there, and right. I know that I'm I'm of them, um, but at the same time, um, it's hard to justify yourself if you know what I mean mm, mm. because I don't speak video. I wear moko kawai though and um, so I end up in a lot of discussions where you are asked are you sure you should have that mm. I I'm Maori I'm Wahini Maori this is mine by mm. right and so just the teaching of basic things mm. like that mm. would um, I think give um, rangatahi um, uh, platform aturanga waiwai on which to start from mm, at mm. least and to say it is okay that you don't speak your reo, it is okay you don't know all the protocols it is okay that you only maybe call your great-grandmother every other birthday but you should make the journey back home so that you are more connected mm. but those kind of conversations aren't really happening from a community point of view mm-hmm. uh, although there are much much more uh, Maori that are looking for where they come from mm. and trying to find all their pūrākau and all of their whaiata and all of their stories, mm. um, but it's a really hard, long, like it's slog. Really, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, so,
0: what well, you're describing is even on the Maori
1: mm.
0: kind of idea of Maori, there's a scale yeah. <laughs> of Māoriness ness, in a sense. Almost. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, how, how entrenched. Because mm. there is um, How oh, Maori, are you? Yeah, and yes. those are the people that stay in in back home, and they keep the home fires burning, and they mm. are always there mm. on every board meeting, for every tangi, mm. for every wedding, they are there. Mm. Uh, and then there are the the city dwellers um, that don't have so much connection, except for when a tangi happens. Um, and I honestly think that. Because back in the day, we used to send money back to our people at home, because mm. they were the ones keeping the home fires burning, and that's what created course, that connection. Yeah. Mm. And it might not have been money, it might have just been a lot mm. of apples, mm. or beef, or a sheep, mm. but it was that mm. um, understanding and validating of their role at home and mm. our role here. Mm. And so when that stopped, I think that connection was cut.
2: Mm. Yeah. It's an interesting point that you talked about in terms of how Māori you are, and I understand that's something that's historically has been used against Māori as well, including in the census. Yeah. You want to tell us about that?
1: Uh, it's that whole, well, you know, for indigenous peoples, and especially in America, they still use um, how full-blooded are you? Mm. And, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, we used to have big arguments as a kid. My nanny's more full-blooded than you, you know, things like that. <laughs> no, there's no such thing as full. Um, anyone being full-blooded. And it's like, mm. no, because that actually comes from dogs. <laughs>
0: That's awful. Yeah, Yeah, when you put it in that
1: way. Mm. Um, and so, um, now, whenever um, I hear or see that kind of concept, I'm quick to say, Kao, he mm. and that's that. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about the census and the needing, it's to hide, hide information, effectively. So my nanny would, um, the census lady would come over, there would be, I don't know, 10 of us living at my nan's. <laughs> <laughs> the house or the housing state home, it had five bedrooms. So okay. theoretically, it could have held yeah. 10, but my cousins were over as well, so it <laughs> been about 12. Um, and she would just send us out to go and play and then tell the lady that there was only five in the home. Um, and you know, it's to do things like, because you don't know where that data is going to go, will it be reported mm. back to state to Housing New Zealand or to Ministry of Social Development? How is Gosh. this going to affect, um, you know, the 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 um, money that comes in mm-hmm. from um, being helped by the government um, and because we never knew, right? And so, yes, I have large, large problems with data collection mm. at a government level um, and just I have a problem with the government in the first place but, you know, Jacinda's cool, Labour's cool Yeah, yeah, she's she, done she a good job She totally knows what lately, she's doing right? yeah.
0: But anything else, yeah So your Moko. Kowai, ko, 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 yeah. thank you, I'm learning, mm. thank you. Um, is such a unique thing in, in New Zealand, I love seeing them. But we were chatting before this about some people don't like seeing them. Oh, yeah. And some people challenge people who have them mm. in an odd and peculiar way. I'd love to hear those stories again and especially to have mm. colored, mm. react yeah. to them. Um, I
1: th- I don't know what it is, really, but I yeah. mean, there've been quite a few very large stories coming out about uh, racism to- um, towards the Maori wahine, wahine, um, because of her moko kawai, Um and you know, just keyboard warriors in general on Facebook mm-hmm. um, being incredibly deeply racist, and it makes me want to set them on fire. But never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but it is that whole thing of when you're the majority. And you see something that's coming from a minority, mm. and you feel threatened by it, then you almost immediately push, in order to push it down again, right. um, because the the amount of waihine Māori that are getting the moko, moko kauae is <laughs> it's just speeding up. It's speeding up exponentially. Um, and like one, two, three, three of my friends um, are getting theirs in the next two weeks Um, and so because we, I do it specifically for normalisation and um, to remind myself of my grandmother Mm. and to remind myself because for me, mine means um, uh, he whare tangata so the ability, the power that comes from being wahine and the ability to give life because no one else can do that Mm. and that's, uh, pre-colonially, we ha- were really strong in our wahine toa-ship uh, and our ability to just hold our own. Um, and I think that post-colonially, a lot of, I think we're going to have to start to look at a lot of the rules that we think we have, mm. that we think were um, pre-colonial when they're actually post um, and some of the rules people might have seen or heard were uh, if you have a moko kawai, you must speak Māori well only Māori was spoken pre-colonially so why would you have that rule? Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you have a moko kawai, you cannot um, drink alcohol well there wasn't alcohol in, as such in pre-colonial days so why would you have that rule? Well, um, same thing goes with um, smoking Oh, right. yeah, we yeah. wouldn't. You
0: can add so many of that. You can't yeah. sleep under a duvet,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, you know, You can't watch TV, you can't watch Conan on TV because he wasn't around, yeah, yeah, you know, of course. You
1: <laughs> it's, and you know, there because a lot of people, um, because it's anecdotal mm. and so it's always hard to capture, hard to um, mm. prove wrong because you can just change it, yeah. um, but it just takes a little bit of critical thinking, um, because there are some, like, um, you can't have sex or do sex acts. And I'm like, he Māori I hope <laughs> 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 um, We are Māori, uh, we are uh, very sexual people. So. Yeah. And uh, it's like, yeah. what?
0: It's, it's, that's so strange, because when I see it, all I see is this, this empowered human, whether it's on a female or a, mm. or a gentleman, and, and just say, wow, that's such a brave thing, mm. to have that on your face. Mm. It's like, it's it's fierce, mm. um, which comes back to the warrior instinct and everything else. But I just think it's such a brave, but not a brave. <laughs> I just mean it's like hacker brave, mm. Mm. you know? It's mm. like, yeah, this is me and mm. and take me as I am and mm. that's that cool. And I'm so bemused when mm. you were sharing these stories about, you know, yeah. um, groups of ladies getting together now. Yeah, to both, for papa. Yeah, to... to educate each other or, or, or kind of to get yeah. some in- so understanding?
1: It, it's so that you have a community of wahine yeah. um, because it is a div- divisive thing and even your own family might not be um, up for you to have it mm. um, mm-hmm. and so they collect people, uh, w- women together and they take you through what it means to have a mm-hmm. um, uh what your um, what the protocol or the tikanga is as well as how to deal with the public and how to um face into mm. someone that might be racist to you or um because you know we face racism on a daily basis mm. um and so from my point of view i um and it's because i'm in wellington it's predominantly Wellington and auckland and i 'm quite an um scary looking when i want to be <laughs> i've never had a problem um yeah but that's my privilege, do you know what I mean? Yeah. If I, however, was maybe down in the South Island, mm. I think I would have a lot more trouble. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I am still, I'm used to wearing my mokokauai now, but I am still vigilant, yeah. if that's the word. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's Thank mm. you for sharing that. Because it's just fascinating, right? It is, it really is. it really is. And I think there's some similarities there in terms of I guess making yourself so sort of visible um, and standing out in communities and stuff like that that I feel like you are also having to grapple with and others in your own community. Um, yeah, that was beautiful, thank you for sharing.
0: It's kind, kind of that, that echoes of the stories you were sharing mm. about wearing hijab
2: to yeah. yeah. your nieces, right? Yeah, yeah. It's signifying yeah. In such a visual way. Yeah, I think also the thing that, I'm just listening to that, um, you know, I guess, and everybody's going through their own, uh, I guess, journey and ways of processing it. For me, I would definitely say I'm on a journey to reclaim my identity. Uh, growing up, I wasn't really proud of my own heritage and, you know, my background. Um, because of what you see or hear in the TV, it's not really good, right? Especially mm-hmm. about refugees or just about Africans, and it's just it's usually negative see the world vision, dollar a day, It's mm. you know all of these horrible things. So I tried so hard growing up to suppress my refugee background. When people ask me where you're from, I'd literally say a country that had nothing to do with refugees, but like, you know, had black people just so that I could, you know, pass yeah, off right. for it. Yes, right. yes, okay. yeah. That's the extent that I went towards, um, I guess, trying so you did to- You a new story for yourself. Every time there was a different story, a different story of where I was from. Well. <laughs> because of that, you know, and I think Uh I reached a stage where I would say probably when I was about 16, 17, that I just was like, you know what, I'm done with that. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm proud of my heritage and proud of where I come from, recognizing that. And ever since then, I've been on this path to like reclaim my identity and I still very much am. And I know that that is a story and an experience that many other third culture kids go up through here that are growing up in New Zealand. Um, and I just wondered with your Moko kawaii, was that a similar experience that you had gone through in your journey?
1: Kind of. Okay. Um, only in that, um, you know, stubbornness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, being raised by my grandmother, it was just always a normality for mm. me. Um, and so I, even all of my other uh, cousins, and when we started having babies, um, the, uh, it was just the little things like holding. My nanny would hold my nieces or nephews or my kids, and they would just trace her moko kawai. And yeah. that whole thing of, if I want that for my family, then someone has to do it, and it might as well be me. So yeah, yeah. and uh, and because we have lost so much, and because. I, the least that I could do was hold on to this one thing, and I thought that oh, I am um, stubborn enough to do it, but I'm also uh, resilient enough. Mm. Yeah, I think, mm. um, and which is why I also find it really um, it was beautiful because I heard your pipiha, mm. um on the um, inspiring stories video, and I love that people because. Sometimes it can be misconstrued As a box tick thing that you mm. do Just because you're speaking mm-hmm. um, But the ability to say Well I'm, this, I'm giving you where I hark from mm. where, Who my ancestors were mm. So that you can have the full knowledge of me mm. And so that when we meet together mm. um, We have a true understanding of each other Instead of like a "g'day, mate mm. yeah.
2: Absolutely You know it's. I found that as a journey eh, Like creating your paper I was like oh my god I was like I went through, that was the first time that I had done it. I've normalized it now. So I always say my PPI in, you know, instances where it's appropriate to do so. Um, and I remember when I did that, I was like, I really want to do this, but at the same time, I don't want to be part of, I guess, things that I complain about or part of the problem on things that I'm trying to speak up about, mm-hmm. right? So I was like, and you asked me at the beginning, where's home? And I mm-hmm. said to you, Aotearo oh, is very much home. And I couldn't do this in a way where, at the same time, you know, I would definitely, I wouldn't say, um, I'm at the baby steps of my my railroad journey, you know, and it's something that I hope to improve on um, gradually over the years. Um, So I, I wasn't in a position, you know, a couple of days before I was supposed to give this talk to succinctly summarise all of this stuff being like, okay, but like, yeah, you know, this is where my family hails from, mm-hmm. but like, you know, Waikato River is like the place I didn't, and I was just like, I can't, I cannot say it in a way where, you know, so I just was like, actually, this could be a journey for me to rediscover my own heritage. And it really very much was. So I was just like, Googling the closest river to us, <laughs> you know, where I guess I was born and I found it and stuff like that. And you know, in Somalia, it's a very flat country. So I remember going to my mom being like, mom, what is our mountain? And she's like, what? And I'm like, you know, our mountain? I'm like, I need to know this. Like, can you tell me what our mountain is? And she's like, you know Somalia is a flat country. We ain't got no mountains where we're from, okay? She's like, the closest mountain is probably in like a region that is like, I don't know, 700 kilometers like away, right? Which is still part of the country. But it's so far away. And I was like, well, that is our closest mountain, so what is it? <laughs> and she's like, I don't even know what the name is. So here I was <laughs> Googling <laughs> closest mountain to Mogadishu. I found a closer one that wasn't even that far away. Okay. So I was like, I rang on my mom and I said, mom, so our mountain is Borahadabalabe. And she was like, what? And I was like, that is our mountain. So if you ever asked, <laughs> you tell them that is our mountain. That's lovely. You know, that. and it's that's the journey that it put me through was to actually go back and try mm-hmm. to identify um, where I was born. And like, you know, the, I guess in a way that's and that is the whole purpose of a peppy heart, as I understand. And so that for me was it was quite fitting, and I had to find myself reminding others, "Hey, actually, you should do this. It's a beautiful thing mm-hmm. to discover." Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that there's debates in Mariam in itself in terms of who can claim what and what you know. And I just, I guess, that was a whole overarching conversation that was already happening, which I stumbled upon online oh, as yeah. I was. Preparing for my paper, so I was like, oh my god, there is no way I'm going to claim Waikato as my river right now, no way Oh,
0: okay, so you can't claim certain things? Well, that- you know,
2: it depends on who you talk to A lot of people that I've spoken right. to have told me You do what is best for you, you do what is right for you Okay, But then there are some Maori who feel quite strongly about And please correct me if I'm wrong here They feel very strongly about Unless that is not your ancestral, you know, place, Mm -hmm. then you shouldn't really claim. And also in Hamilton, the closest mountain to Hamilton is Taupuri and that is quite a sacred mountain Mm. for a lot of Maori. And I was like, oh my God, I cannot claim (laughs) Taupuri. Like there is no way that this is happening. So yeah, there was all that internal debate that was happening in the midst of trying to put together my pepeha. (laughs) Because
1: I had actually heard um, a man do his pepeha in Gaelic yeah. It was the most beautiful damn thing ever. Yeah. yeah. Was, yeah.
0: So there's a bloody challenge to me.
1: Yeah. <coughs> I still haven't done
0: my peppy yeah, I I do. Yeah, I've still got to do that, but then do it in Welsh. Mm. Mm. Yep. Mm. Okay. On. I'm going to make a deal by the end of the year and I'll know it. Mm. I'm terrible with languages just because my hearing impairment can't
2: speak properly and all that mm. other stuff, but that's a challenge to me. It's a good one.
1: Yes. It's Gaelic.
2: yeah. You know what made it easier though For me is that And this I guess brought a lot closer to the similarities Between uh, Maori culture And my culture is that we have a concept of Iwi and hapu oh. <laughs> So that made it really easy for me I know that a lot of people struggle with that Like what is your iwi, what are you going to say I was like oh I know that, that's quite easy mm-hmm. And I was like oh I know my hapu Like That's very easy So that made it quite The process of it a lot easier um you know there's other stuff like what is your marai and like you know what like or what's your walker and i was like um do i like say the flight number that i came in like i was like how does this work because like you know i was like that would be yeah. good b306
0: you know, whatever it was. yeah you're yeah. yeah. be yeah. right because there's even one where you can say you're not animal but um yeah, like an animal or signifier. Because well,
1: it's supposed to be particular to you, right? So mm.
0: I could have dragon. Yeah.
1: You could. Well,
0: because the Welsh dragon. Yeah. Um, because uh, what
1: it is, what your um, you know, mm. it is what is what do you come from? Yeah. And so even if you don't have the same like waka, yeah. it might be something else. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There isn't uh, a one size fits mm. all approach. I think that's what I took from it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, one of my friends, Coley, she um, went back and she found all of her ancestry and she wrote a blog on it and it's beautiful if you want to read it. Her name is Tangerine Coley, I think. Yeah, on Twitter. Um, but yeah, it was it because was she really journeyed and visited their graves and this, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah, that is badass.
0: That is badass indeed. Mm-hmm. It's like that TV program, Where Are You From or something, right? Yeah. Where they go and check out the whole background and stuff, yeah. these are famous people yeah. and they're always kind of interesting. Um, fascinating, yeah. So thank you for sharing all the, your stories about that, I really appreciate it. And yeah, I love the kind of similarities and yeah, yeah, that you guys have got um, your own kind of Iwi idea. Because yeah, of course, mm-hmm. we, if you think about it is the differences are the similarities, right? You mm. just got a different name for it and the same with the tribes in yeah. Wales and the Gaelic yeah. tribes or the Celtic tribes it's yeah. just a different word for the same thing it's
2: just groups of people
1: mm-hmm. figuring
2: out where they're from and yeah. coming up with some tradition it actually just made me realize through that throughout that process how much that actually we could learn from maori in the mm-hmm. sense that our iwi is used as a way of iwi's and used by maori as a way of embracing their identity obviously identifying where they're from to others that they see and stuff right. like that we've been using iwi as a way of killing each other for 20 something years. I understand that Māori have had, gone through similar experience back, but Mm. somehow they've managed to overcome that in a way where now it's used in a beautiful way. And that's the purpose that iwi is supposed to be used in my culture as well. Mm -hmm. But except when things like colonization and stuff happens and the whole divide and conquer thing, um, it's obviously being used in a negative way. So sometimes I'm really hesitant to use that part of my pepeha when I'm speaking to audiences where there's a large Somali presence mm-hmm. or something because of that, right? Yeah, because be have divisive. Yeah, than we still connective. haven't come across those underlying tensions, those tribal tensions. Yeah. And, to do with the civil war. And, yeah, yeah, and I guess I don't want people to think that I'm a tribalist and that I'm like, yeah, this is my tribe, this yeah. is what I'm ripping, do you know? And it was yeah. like, so I will skip that bit. And I'll say other parts of my pepeha. It's really complex, but yeah.
1: Yeah, because uh, we do have. So, so when someone gets up to do their I call it all the or the or, or me. Um, you you'll be like you'll see people go oh yeah. <laughs> because they can trace the, where that person fits yeah. and they know the ewe, and they, there's usually been a war or someone stole someone's wife yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, ask Amber. <laughs> if it happens for Amber all the time. Okay. <laughs> um, and, so,
0: and people start to guffaw in the audience once they mention something. Oh, uh, yeah. Or uh, they'll be like, yes, I
1: know that our, our <laughs> iwi don't get along right now, but um, <laughs> for this event, we can. <laughs> yeah. But it's a
0: playful. Kind of. Is there, or is there still an underlying is an sense of yeah. Yeah. vitriol? Yeah,
1: and because it's hundreds, hundreds of years.
0: Mm. I, yeah. I'm thinking about something similar in terms of, like, our greatest enemy in Wales are the English, <laughs> right? <laughs> and there's the classic line, because we're such a rugby nation, is that... In Wales, we only sport two teams: and that's Wales and anybody playing against England.
2: Yes, probably got a
0: similar one with Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, right. Okay, but it is so significant that it, it is the old enemy. That's yeah. what they called when they come to visit and play us and things, because of the centuries. We have a few few yeah. extra zeros on uh-huh. ours, but the centuries kind of a historical thing where we will jibe each other, but there is also this but underlying, uh, yeah, this kind of. I don't know, burning coals you know, mm. deep in, inside you, you go, yes, that's my enemy, but come on, we're just living next door, carry on. Yep. But there's something there. Yep.
2: Always. It is.
0: I want to talk very briefly um, or take a side note about, or sidestep, into, you spoke at the UN. Yes. That's a big deal. Um, How did yeah. you get the phone call? How did you get the email? What's what's the protocol? I know it's specifically the refugee Cons- yeah. commission yeah.
2: thing. Yeah, still the UN, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, sp- I spoke at the UN twice. Um, same year, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, I guess I've been really quite passionate about refugee issues and stuff like that. Um, I was leading a campaign to make our refugee quota system fair and inclusive for all. Um, So a lot of people don't know, but prior to um, October last year, and since from 2008 to October last year, we had a rule that was kind of placed in, by the government at the time, really quite discreetly, that basically no new refugees from Africa or in the Middle East unless you already have an established family connection. Um, there was no way of proving that family connection because they never came and told us. For those that are already here um, there was no system in place, it was a deliberate way of actually keeping people like me out of the country, there's no other way to put it. Um, it makes Trump's Muslim ban look nothing. I mean, we had that in place before even Trump came with the Muslim ban. Mm -hmm. And this is our terror. This is New Zealand. This is our very, not our history, but our current recent activities that are happening in this country. And a lot of people like to pretend that we're not as bad. Yeah. that it's not horrific here in comparison mm-hmm. to other places. Mm-hmm. Um, because we love to use those comparisons all the time, right? Just to dismiss our lived experiences and the stories of what's happening here. So I was quite vocal about that and been publicly speaking out about it. Um, and, you know, the UN had reached out to me um, because I guess they wanted to incorporate a bit more refugee voices in their Um, annual NGO consultations that happen Um, so and they'd seen a bit of stuff that I was doing in the media and stuff and they said hey would you be interested in coming up and actually uh, facilitating the opening conversation with the high commissioner, the UN high commissioner prior to that they had like high profile broadcast people um, in that role Mm -hmm. which was really interesting and I said yeah sure if you want me to I guess I can try and do it um so it was really nice for them to do that. I think um I was able to take with me a couple of other people from New Zealand um to to there so it was quite a where was this in Geneva it was in Geneva yeah. it was in Geneva and um yeah long as flight mm-hmm. um it's uh it's a interesting country of its own it very much reminded me of New Zealand actually in some ways, just like the you know the landscape yeah, of the landscape, country is yeah. really really beautiful um and Yeah, I was able to moderate that first conversation with um, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. I did a bunch of other stuff for them on social media and things. Um, And then I was invited back at the end of the year when they had the Global um, Refugee Forum, which is like the first kind of meeting of its own like for like over like 30, 40 years where they brought together like world leaders you know, civil society, um, nation, states, everyone to come together to tackle the global refugee crisis, which, you know, so it's quite a tumultuous, it's been, you know, prior to that it was quite a tumultuous period in terms of refugee resettlement and so forth. So, again, I was able to um, use my platform and I guess my privilege to be able to speak on that issue to talk about refugee resettlement in, in a much more... Broader uh, perspective, by this time, the policy had been amended, which was great, um, after some public pressure. Um, and it was cool because I got to meet Grover from Sesame Street. Okay, just stop there. Oh my guy. Uh, you know, know what I mean? That is I, kind I, I of,
1: well, think, Elmo. Yeah. I I'm all <laughs>
0: Grover. Ooh, there's a playoff. But in, in what context? Do you, did someone come up? You said you would. Would you have got a gentleman? Honestly, somebody come did come ones. up to me and said, "Hey, would you be <laughs>
2: interested in doing an interview with Grover?" And I was like, "Are you <laughs> kidding me?" I was like, "Of course." <laughs> I was like, "My lord and nieces are going to kill me for like uh-huh. not bringing them to this." But you know, let's let's do this. Um, and so you interviewed Grover. Or Grover interviewed actually interviewed him? me. Right. And. It was an interesting interview because we had to stop a couple of times. It was it was it was hilarious. Um, I just I just I just was like, is this serious right now? Is this actually happening? I can I can I can. I'm like, please redo this. Um, so it took a couple of goes, but um, yeah, it was a partnership between Sesame Street and the UNHCR, the Refugee Agency, in trying to incorporate and tell the stories of refugees and their perspectives and so forth. So. Um, I was also able to make a pledge from their Culture Minds as an organization. Mm. We were able to commit, you know, I guess the whole idea of the Global Refugee Forum is that nations and states make pledges. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't anything tangible from New Zealand um, uh, in terms of the state, but we were, you know, we were well represented from a civil society perspective mm. in ramping up the pressure and ensuring that, you know, we commit to, I guess, ensuring that we play that advocacy role in that space um, and and holding people to account that need to be held to account. Um, so it was, it was it was an awesome experience. Um, I was supposed to go back in June uh, for the annual NGO consultations again, um, but that never wow. eventuated because of COVID. Mm-hmm. What did you learn? You know, I between learned those that, two experiences. I learned that, um, I actually it was really interesting because again, I went at the opening talk of when I was doing the first, first time um, and it was like the main like, opening slot and I think everybody's really interested in coming to hear from the High Commissioner himself. I, I said to the High Commissioner, I'm just gonna do my pepehide just so you know. This is a traditional thing that we do in New Zealand every time that there's a public mm-hmm. speaking, so I just was like, just it's not gonna take that long, but I just need you to bear that in mind so that you know what's happening. Now there's so many translators.
1: Oh, right, because it's yeah. an international
2: thing. <laughs> they clearly didn't have one for Māori and <laughs> I stand up and I'm like, I go straight into my pipiha, and you can just see the translators like because they're like all positioned just in mm-hmm. these little rooms at the top, and they're just like, what's going on? Like I can't understand. Like, <laughs> what are you speaking? Like, and everyone like pressing their translator thing, like trying to go to the next channel to yeah. make sure, Glenn. and they can't find it. And then I switched to English, and they just laughed because they thought I was pulling a prank. Oh! Everyone was just like in laughter, and I was like, and then I explained what I had done, gotcha, and why it's important, and how I shared with them my tutoring why why and so forth, mm. and why we do this in New Zealand. <laughs> um, and I think for me, what I took away was um, a lot of people had come out to me afterwards and said you know, I'm from Canada or I'm from you know Australia and like what to me that showed me was that we should be doing a lot more in terms of trying to understand and learn more about our indigenous community. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually a couple of people said, you know, you've inspired me to go back and and learn, try to learn the language where I can or try to speak it in, in situations where it's appropriate to do so mm-hmm. um, or just understand what my role is as a refugee. Um, For me, that was a really interesting Takeout was that actually we've got a long way to go in terms of building relationships between indigenous communities and and people that have been forcibly um, displaced from their own countries, you know, um, and partly it comes down to, again, things like history and education. You know, we frame New Zealand as a country where refugee resettlement has only really been in existence since 1980s. But really, Tangata Fenua have had a history of mm-hmm. providing home and refuge to all sorts of groups of people that have been fleeing all sorts of, you know, violence, persecution, mm-hmm. um, poverty, you name it, lack of opportunities, all of that. For me, I consider that to be part of, I guess... Just part of Māori culture and being hospitable and, and welcoming and so forth. So, Māori have been paving the way for such a long time, and I think it's important that we recognize that there's a lot that we can learn from indigenous communities in that space. Mm. Mm.
1: Mm.
2: Oh, kia ora. Kia ora.
0: <laughs> <laughs> It is lovely, right, to mm. hear that. And I love the idea of you starting speaking, <laughs> doing your PPR, and everybody's like, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's
2: disruptive in a good way, right? I, I said to the UN, I said, next time maybe it would be nice if we can have a Maori interpreter. Yeah, so. just to, to help along yeah. With things, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of, uh,
0: again, harping back a little bit to, to my little story mm. here, being from Wales. What people don't realize in Wales is that we have a real solid base to keep both the culture and the language alive. Mm. Uh, If you ever visited Wales, I don't know if you have. I haven't. Have you? (laughs) Okay. You would both dig it for a couple (laughs) of reasons. Uh, But one being that every signpost is in both English and Welsh. I love that. So we have something called the Welsh Language Act, Mm. which basically means, to sum it up, everything produced for public consumption needs to be bilingual, Wow, both in English and Welsh. It does waste a lot of paper, I always think, because you get lots of leaflets and then you've got to turn it over for the Welsh, right? And or extend it out, right? However, I think it's so important that when you're just wandering around, the Welsh is very visible. And, uh, you know, it's obviously sometimes overtakes the English as well in a nice way, you know, when you say off to Cardiff, Ca- Ca- which is Cardiff. Wells for mm. Cardiff, you know, stuff like that, you know, which is real fun. Or you can have fun with it when people are visiting. You can drive around and try to say those words. Yeah, <laughs> Wells is one of those odd ones where a double L means a chla sound. Oh, my gosh. You know, and, and depending yeah. on where the Y is, yeah. it could be an I or an E and all those <laughs> weird things. Um, but my favorite is when you're driving down the road and you see the sign for services. Yeah, simple yeah. word, services, Pull in for a cup of tea or, yeah. but underneath, remember, we got the Welsh word, services, English, gwaesenaithiae, oh which is the, the Welsh for services, so cool. which is mega long, yeah. you know, services, so, yeah, I do think someone's making a lot of money about yeah. s- signs in Wales, but again, I think it's really lovely that we have that embedded in our culture in mm. Wales, mm. so we don't lose our sense of place, mm. self, yeah. history, and all that other things. Um, so, please go to Wales, I think you would dig it yeah, just for that. And cool. the castles. Yeah, There's castles everywhere. Well, I grew up within 10-mile radius, of yeah. three castles. Yeah, within the 10-mile radius where I grew up. That's cool. It's a bit overkill, right? <laughs> It'd be like, everybody's got a castle close, oh isn't I, I'm wondering in your pipi you could do a castle, closest yeah, castle. <laughs> I'm sure you could,
1: eh?
0: I totally would if I was you, man. Yeah? Okay. Uh, well, Castel Coch.
2: Which means the Welsh castle. Um, that would be, yeah. that be yeah, cool, p- yeah. I love that. I can't wait to see you incorporate that into your paper. Huh? But, you know, only language you will is, know. Uh, only I will <laughs> know because <laughs> I will hold you to account on that one. I'm going to look out for it. But, you know, language is everything, right? Like, mm. I remember growing up, um, our mother would not allow us to speak English at the home. Mm. Just we to weren't keep allowed to make sure that But we never understood is. why she was doing that. Right. Okay. You know, she said, in my home, you can either speak three languages. You can have a choice. You know, so Somali, French, no Somali, no. Swahili, and Arabic. Oh. Yeah. Because I know some African countries are yeah. very yeah. French, yes, right? Yes, very French. Yeah. So yeah. forgive me like for that. Kongo, so Congo, Swahili, yeah, Swahili, Somali, Somali, and Arabic. She said, I don't care which of those languages that you choose to speak, but inside this house, yeah. you are not speaking English. Does she still hold you to that when you go home? Um You know, I think I, we can see why she chose to do that because now mm-hmm. my little nieces don't speak Somali, but they understand it. Okay. Okay, yeah. so you talk to them in Somali, big. but they'll respond back to you in English. Mm-hmm. And they have a hard time communicating with my mother. <laughs> and I can see that playing out. And I'm just like, oh, okay, this is why. It yeah. makes sense.
1: To battle, I'll mm. be careful.
0: Mm. Um, we lost ours within what a generation? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's the same Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because my grand was brought up speaking Welsh, uh, my dad wasn't, wow. and I wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, and just like here, we have Welsh speaking schools in Wales mm. and English speaking schools in Wales. Interesting. They speak. They teach. Sorry, the same curricula, mm. It's just one will teach mm. it in Welsh, one And then I have friends now who are Welsh speakers because mm. they went to Welsh speaking schools and other friends who I went to school with who speak more English and we struggle with our Welsh. Mm. Yeah. Totally, yeah? So it's a shame that that's not built in mm. a little bit
2: more. I agree. Yeah.
1: definitely. Mm. Yeah. We, are uh, well, and my whanau, because all, every, all of my cousins from my generation can't speak Māori, though we went to Kohanga Reo because my grandmother ran it. Um, <laughs> uh, but what we, the rangatahi that are coming through now are just so badass, it's mind boggling. Yeah. Uh, one of my uh, cousins, but he's 20 years younger than me, yeah, mm, oh, more than that. Yeah, that can yeah. work, yeah. Yeah, um, he is so, so deep and so capable that, like, he makes the rest of us quite teary. <laughs> 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 and, you know, he's the one that we go to when we need advice. Okay. or Because um, he does all of our tamoko and he did my right. moko as well. Wow. Um, and, you know, because he's only 22, 23. Wow. Um, and it's like, that's a bit much to have an entire whānau, plus all mm. your cousins, yeah. um, coming to you for. Um, suppose, yeah. Yeah. But my aunt made it, uh, she moved from Wellington to Otaki in order to do that. And so, yeah.
0: So, do you feel hopeful then for a rebirth of some yeah, kind of
1: absolutely. cultural
0: centre and, and, and kind of sensitivity towards that?
1: Well, yeah, because well, I think that going forward, we're going to have more reo speakers, mm. um, more fluent, younger reo speakers. Uh-huh. And, of course, um, because the seasons chop and change, um, our older more racist. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> For um, sure, yeah. Elders will start to li- start to go, uh-huh. and then our youngers will come through. Yeah. And so, yeah.
0: Well, something you mentioned earlier on, which I never... Understood before coming here the idea of biculturalism. Because mm. where I was from, multiculturalism was the, mm. the name that we definitely understood. Coming here, bicultural, I found that quite divisive mm. when I first heard it to my mm. ear. Mm. However, very quickly I understood yes, the indigenous population just everybody else. Yes. And it's not a divisive thing, it's yeah. just a descriptive thing yeah. to understand where we all are yeah. at. Yeah. And, and I found that much easier to digest mm. than multiculturalism, man, where it's yeah. still, we're figuring out the rules. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's, I think I, I'm, even though, you know, I'm kind of, came here, I'm mm. an expat, whatever mm. you want to call me, maybe an immigrant, but I don't yeah. think that's a good yeah. way to describe me, just yeah. an expat. It's just like, yeah, this is a, a rich nation full of its own stories that people are rediscovering, it feels like. And I've only been here nine years. Mm -hmm. But in that nine years, I see an
2: appetite for both understanding and celebrating. Absolutely. We still have a long way to go in helping change that narrative because, you know, not everybody looks at it that way, Mm. including many from my own communities. And I think that that in itself is, is really goes back to the way in which we frame things and the way in which things are thought and um, how we're educated about it. Um, Yeah, yeah. For many, biculturalism is, uh, you know, our bicultural context um, seems a bit exclusive and and not relevant to them. Um, So those are barriers that we're still trying to break down. Mm. I agree. This has been delightful.
0: I've been so happy that I brought you pair together. Thank I you. think you'll kind of continue, hopefully, conversations in for the future. Sure. totally. For sure. and, and things uh, that you can maybe build upon. But I want to thank you for your time. Thank for you. Giving up your, your stories as well, which are more precious than your time, I think. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it, DK. Yeah,
1: this has been brilliant.
0: That was Creative Welly. Thank you, Hiria, Thank you, Gullard. Thank you also to Alex over at X Equals for hosting us and Jono again from Empire Films who produced the video podcast. This has been Creative Welly. Courageous conversations with bold humans.